we're, 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 we're close to the end of this, uh, this series on humanity and with, you know, the year student ministry, right? Um, so we'll do, I think, two meetings in April. And then that's it. Uh, we'll do, I think we'll have you guys at my house or something for a cookout in May. Um, but we won't meet for regular Sunday nights in May and June just because it's always a little bit hectic and crazy. End of school, you have all the weird things that school, not weird, you know, unusual things that schools do, concerts and tournaments. And Do they still do like awards nights? I hated those. Like, it's like... Oh, that's ours is like in the evening as you know, hey, you're getting one award because you got like an A on a spelling test. Why don't you come sit here for four hours and listen to everybody else's stuff? And I'm just like, I'm, I'm not into that. Uh, we have our perfect attendance. Like no one cares. If you have perfect attendance, that's great. I'm proud of you. Um, I just don't care. Um, so we'll, we'll meet regularly. We're at the end of March. So April and then back in July going forward. Uh, so that's what's ahead of us. Tonight we're continuing Doctrine of Humanity uh, with, with the theme, We Are Sexual, um, which is not one of the weeks I'm looking forward to. Um, not because it's like awkward or whatever, um, but the, um, the, the fact that we have to address it comes from the world and not from culture. Or not from the Bible. It comes from culture, not from the Bible. And like the fact that some of you guys are sixth grade, some of you are eleventh grade. Like, I'm gonna try and make it helpful for everyone. We'll we'll see if I can do that well. Um, so there's just words and things I'm not going to define to make things as unawkward as possible because um, you can do this weirdly. But like, rather when we talked about the other, I have no idea. Let's call it. 12, 14 topics of we are. Like, I have to pick topics carefully. And maybe sexuality makes the top 14 of them, but I don't know if it does. Because sexuality isn't actually required to be human. But we have to talk about it because the world would not agree with that statement. Um, though I think the Bible does. Like, the, the world gives sexuality this inflated importance, right? Like, I've never heard it explicitly, but the message that we're constantly receiving from media is, is who you are sexually is who you are truly, right? That, that's just blatantly unbiblical. And so, like, my lack of excitement, I guess, tonight is because I don't want to play into kind of that pseudo-inflation of the importance here. Um, so by way of an introduction, let me just vent my curmudgeonly old man, get off my lawn frustrations. Um, but no, let's point out three myths that culture and actually the church too talks about when it comes to sexuality. And then once we kind of clear those off of our lawn, we can start building a biblical understanding. So three myths. I, I should have printed notes. I, I keep forgetting to do that. Number one. Your sexual orientation is who you are, right? The world wants you to define yourself by who or, I guess, what um, now you're attracted to, right? Where you're romantically inclined. Uh, LGBTQIA isn't a preference issue. It's an identity issue, right? You should define yourself, the world says, by your sexuality. But, like, the Bible doesn't speak that way, Uh 
in fact, the Bible never even speaks to sexual orientation. Like that's a that's a concept not in the Bible. Um, the term homosexual orientation wasn't even used till like the late 1800s. It was 1869 in Germany, and then it was translated into English in 1892, and then used natively in 1901. So all that you know to say. Like when we define ourselves sexually, that's a idea that's at maximum 122 years old in America. Um, it, the, the Bible doesn't put your core identity here. Second issue is that the culture would say that manhood or womanhood, I guess manhood, um, is earned in the bedroom, right? You're not a real man unless you're sexually active, which is crazy again because the Bible never speaks that way. Uh, we talked four months ago about gender where God intrinsically gives gender at, before birth, right? Like before you're even born, like manliness is not a status to earn. It's something that you just are if you're, if you're born a man. And then third, uh, marriage and family and sexuality, like they're essential to be fulfilled as a human being, right? Like the world at large has a really low view of singleness. I mean, anybody in the romantic comedies had a feeling no. I'm like, if the girls are here, maybe. Tim was here, still probably not, but maybe. Um, you know, the whole picture is like the, you complete me, because everybody loves Jerry Maguire from like 40 years ago. Um, like, like you're incomplete until you find a partner. And I think the church might actually be worse than the world when it comes to valuing singleness. Uh, at least we're just as bad. And so I'm like, oh, I bet, you know, I put it in the bulletin. It's like, oh, we're talking about sexuality. Dan has to talk about marriage as if that's the only goal and, you know, there's no robust, healthy view of singleness, which is the situation that you're all in right now. Like, maybe some of you will get married. Maybe none of you will. Like, I don't know. Um, like, it's not weird to be single. It's not a lesser calling than marriage and family. In fact, if you ask the Apostle Paul, like, it may be a greater calling to be single than to be married. But we'll get to that at the end. And so all that to say, like, we can overplay this topic big time, right? By saying, like, we are who we are in our sexual preferences. It makes us a man. And, like, to not be married is, is a lesser calling. Um, and those things are just blatantly unbiblical. But even with, like, all of that, out of the way, we still need to acknowledge, like, one of the facts about humanity is we are sexual. Uh, we've talked about Genesis a ton, and before the fall, like, God told Adam and Eve, hey, go make more people. Come together, be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth. He designed men and women to be drawn towards one another. He gave them hormones and desires and urges so that they would marry, so they would become one flesh, to fill the earth with more of God's image. And so, like, sexual desire, sexual urge, it, it's a normal thing. It's part of being human. Sex isn't a result of the fall. It's not a result of sin. It's good. It's holy. Um, but in our experience, it's hard to imagine what holy, pure sexuality actually looks like. Because we've all been born into a world that's broken by sin. Uh, we know ourselves are broken by sin. Things are not as they should be. I mean, like, 
you guys know this, that, that sexual sin in particular has a way of plaguing our consciences. Uh, like This time last year, I got to teach a class uh, in Sunday school on how to kill sin, at least according to Facebook memories. I totally forgot about it. Um, and at the first little bit of that, that series, I'm like, okay, so we're not just talking about sin generally, like, hey, how does somebody somewhere kill some particular sin? I want you to think of that one sin, what a Puritan would call a besetting sin, that's the sin that you have a love-hate relationship with. Right? The sin, when I say we're talking about killing sin, it's the first sin that pops into your mind. A sin you would love to be free from, but also would kind of hate to depart with because you love it so much. And I have a feeling, like, not because I've surveyed you guys, um, but because I wasn't born yesterday and I know how teenage guys work. Like, if I say, hey, what sin pops into your mind when I say, like, you're chronic beloved sin, like half of you guys, I would guess, would probably be thinking something lustful, something sexual in nature. Because we, we, we just live in this world where there's not a purity and holiness, even when it comes to believers, when it comes to sexuality. And yet, like we talked about last time, we're in process um, of being pure and holy. And so some of the purity and the beauty is restored to where you know sexuality doesn't feel awkward and dirty but good and pure and, and so when the bible talks about sexuality it's generally going to hold out this picture of of pure beauty Here, here's a word that we don't use often of chastity right a sexually sexuality that's uncorrupted that's being renewed to its original state of of sinlessness um so let me let me just read you a two paragraphs here about chastity. Um, I was reading this book by some Australian Lutheran, and he described this really well. Um, a textual this week, I'm like, so my footnotes, I'm like, I have a Lutheran, an Anglican, a Presbyterian, a Baptist, and a Methodist. Like, I feel like this is a really bad joke starting. Um, but he says, uh, chastity is sexual purity. It has to do with sexual reservation for spousal intimacy and fidelity in marriage. It's so important for us because the sexual relationship of a husband and wife, though obviously physical, is also deeply personal and a spiritual matter. For better or worse, it touches and affects us in our souls. It has much, if not more, to do with the mind than the body. It affects what we think, how we feel, what grips our imagination. It has, in fact, more to do with our sense of self as a whole integrated person than with our male or female bodies. Chastity goes far deeper than sexual abstinence because it involves the whole self rather than just the body with its organs. Morally, it has to do with the sexual integrity of a man or a woman with their exclusive commitment to each other. Spiritually, it has to do with purity of heart that only Jesus can provide, a devout heart that's been purified by Jesus, and a faithful heart that's governed by self-giving love rather than possessive sexual lust. All right. So what we're getting at is he's saying that like, when we talk about the goodness of purity or chastity, it, it's, it's more than what you do or don't do with particular body parts. We're, we're talking about an entire life that's devoted to God. Because sexuality is more than just about the physical. It, it's the culmination of a one-flesh relationship where people 
live together, think together, pray together, strive together, give up their desires for the good of another. They tie their futures and their hopes and dreams together. They sin against each other and forgive each other, like forsaking all others for each other. Um, so when, when Christy and I got married, I took the advice of a seasoned pastor who said, don't write your own wedding vows. Like, maybe this makes me old-fashioned. I don't know. But use old established vows because like you're 24, you're 25, like you're an idiot. You have no idea what you're going to face in life. And you have no idea what you actually need to promise to each other. So be humble for a second and be discipled for people that have some idea what you need to promise. That, you know, you need to promise to be my wife, husband, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us part, right? Because in becoming linked with your spouse, that you're considered one flesh, then you can completely give yourself in holiness and purity and chastity to them as an experienced gift in purity. Um, I mean, like purity, holiness, chastity, this is an attribute of God. 1 John 3, 3 says, everyone that hopes in him purifies himself as God himself is pure. Um, so we're striving to be pure like God so we can enjoy purity of the gifts that God gives, not the, the, the condemnation, not the defilement. We reflect God in, in, in sacrificial love and giving rather than taking because the sinful world thinks, oh, what can I get out of this? How can I be selfish? But godliness is, how can I sacrifice my desires, my good, for the good of somebody else? Um, like, you know the, the line in Genesis 2 about marriage? We always go there. Genesis 2, 24 and 25. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. First time anyone's hearing that, you've heard that like every time anyone talks about marriage, yeah? Um, anybody know what's really weird about that? You know, when it was first written by Moses? compared to everybody else in Canaan and Egypt. So culturally speaking, if you're a woman, you have no power. You should find a man, cleave to him, and hope he doesn't leave you or else you're going to be poor and destitute um, for a lifetime. But that's not what God says. That's not how Genesis works. He says, okay, a man leaves, he finds a woman, he holds fast to her. He says, okay, so there's an order, men are in charge of the household, but it's an authority that comes by sacrifice. It's not you stay with everything that's comfortable and make the woman come to you. You go to her and cleave to her. Because that's the way power and authority work in God's kingdoms, in God's kingdom, right? It's it's a authority of sacrifice. How can I support her? How can I love her? How can I bring her joy and stability in this relationship? How can I sacrifice for her and love her as Christ loves the church and gave himself for her? Ephesians 5. Because that's, that's the picture of marriage. So when we think about sexuality, the question shouldn't be like, how can I get what I want? Or she owes me something, like how can I get that? But how can I love and serve my wife? It's an act of giving, not taking, of loving, caring, God and spouse, honoring, nurturing, self-giving love, where we give ourselves wholly, not just physically, to one another, to, to our spouse, right? Not one another, generally. Um, 
And so when this gift from God is used in godly ways, it, it should lift our eyes to him, to what's good and true and beautiful. But as, as I said already, like this isn't how sexuality is usually experienced in our world, right? Um, lots of problems arise when we ignore God's design. Um, so Mark, Mark 10. We probably don't need to flip there. Um, the Pharisees are coming. They're trying to trick Jesus. And verse 2, they say, Hey, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And Jesus answers them, Well, what did Moses say? Moses allowed us to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, Yeah, because your hardness of heart, he wrote to you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. So, so Jesus gets this trick question of, hey, what, what are our thoughts on divorce? Like, is it wrong? Is it okay? Because Moses says it's fine. And Jesus responds with this principle. He says, just because something exists doesn't mean it's right. Doesn't mean it's the plan. Doesn't mean it's ideal. And more than that, verse 9, he says, here's what is. God invents marriage. God invents sexuality. That means God is in charge. He draws the rules. And we have no right to um, separate what God has joined together. And I think by, you know, logically we can say we also have no right to draw together things that God has separated. And a lot of our problems presently with sexuality come because we either try to join what God has separated or separate what God has joined together, right? Um, what time is it? Okay, we can keep going. So, like, what happens when we join things that God has separated? Um, I'm just taking these two broad categories. I mean, there, when it comes to problems, there's a thousand things I could talk about. So, joining what God has separated, this could be an unmarried couple sleeping together or polygamy, you know, having multiple spouses. Uh, homosexuality, even if the world considers them marriage. Um, the principle is if God has not joined two people together in marriage, they shouldn't be joined through sexual activity, right? Go to 1 Corinthians 6. 1 Corinthians 6. We'll be there, and then we'll be in 7. Um, a little bit. 1 Corinthians 6. If you have a Bible open from the sermon this morning, you're in 1 Corinthians 3 already. Um, in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul starts speaking of this. And it's interesting, because like he doesn't just be like, no, don't do that. It's, it's wrong. God said not to, so don't. He doesn't give a moral or ethical argument. He gives a theological reason. He says, don't sleep with someone who's not your spouse because our bodies belong to God, not to us. Um, we're still flipping. 1 Corinthians 6. If you have a page number in the church Bibles, just holler it out. 897 is where we're headed. Yeah. The, the church was apparently making this move. Here, here's their logic. He says, verse 12 and 13, I have a stomach, which is meant for food, and food exists, so if I'm hungry, I should eat. 
In the same way, I have a sexual body and sex exists. So if I have desires, I should sleep with whoever I want. To which Paul replies, no, no, that's not how it works. Like the body isn't made for food or for sexual immorality. The body is primarily made for the Lord. So you honor the Lord and that means, sure, you can eat as a, as a secondary thing. Or you can be intimate with your spouse. Like the body is far more significant and meaningful than we give it credit for. It's not like my gas light comes on. Oh, I fill up my car with gas. I do that with any bodily desire. He says, no, like the body is important. It's meaningful. And furthermore, if like that's your view of how sexuality works, you're selling sex short. Like it's not, it's not utilitarian. It's not just I'm hungry so I eat. He says, like, sex is, it's bigger, it's more profound. It's a picture of Christ's love and his church, is how Ephesians 5 puts it. Um, And so to have it in a non-covenantal, that's non-marriage relationship, or like a temporary setting, it's blurring this deeper meaning that we should have, right? And more than that, verse 18 says, sexual sin is different than other sins because of, other sins are like outside the body, but this is a sin against our body. So it comes from, from us. It, it affects us holistically. So to join yourself with someone you're not already joined with in a covenant is, is unthinkable. We, we don't get to make those choices. God makes these choices. We belong to him, body and soul. So if we engage with in joining what God has separated, right, then we also start bringing God into the mix. Like, The Holy Spirit can't leave you if you're a Christian. And so you don't want to join him with sin. Um, So the argument goes, your body's not your own. You don't get to join it to whomever you want. Um, There is no such thing as like a simply physical relationship. It's all spiritual. Because God thinks higher of our bodies than we often do. He doesn't say, you know what, it's, it's fine, it's worthless. You're going to die, just like the body's going to decay in the ground. Do whatever you want with it now. No, he says, your bodies, your lives, your actions, they matter. Be dignified. Honor them. And more than that, like your physical body is where the Holy Spirit lives. So, so don't bring him into the presence of sin. I mean, look at the conclusion, 19 and 20. We talked about these verses a while back. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your bodies. Um... So we'll just take that big picture principle of don't join your body together with something it shouldn't be joined with because your body is more important than you think and sexuality is more theologically important than you think. And I think you can apply it to any given situation that you're you're dealing with. Um, Or maybe not. Maybe ask some, ask me like we... Here's the thing of, you know, so we have 12th graders, 6th graders. Like, maybe this needs follow-up conversations. I, I know of a couple pastors in the room that will talk with you. At least I will. I don't care. Joel, I'm putting you on the spot. I'm assuming that's the case. Um, right? There's a lot more help that can come one-on-one. Of Okay, here's the principle. How does it apply to this particular sin? Like, hang out in my office this week. We can talk. Um, Let me say this, though, before we move on. Um, 
if you send, when you send sexually, generally the way it seems, it's like you're either put forward as a hero or a monster, right? The world says, hey, good job throwing off, you know, the shackles of morality. Like, we should celebrate sin. And they can treat sinners like heroes, and they're not. On the other hand, if you're in a conservative church, like, ours, right? And, and Christian families like yours, we can kind of vilify sexual sin, saying you're a villain, right? Lie, cheat, steal, be greedy. That's, I don't care as long as you're not sinning in these ways. And, and we can treat sinners like monsters, and they're not. Like, you know what people who sin sexually are? Sinners. Like, like me, like any of us. And that's great news because Jesus didn't die for heroes or monsters. He died for sinners. He forgives sinners and adopts sinners and cleanses sinners. And he's not repulsed by sinners like we are. He comes near to us in our sin. He offers his life for sinners so that he can make our dirty, defiled selves like his pure, holy, beautiful, chaste self. Um, right before the section in 1 Corinthians 6 we were looking at is... Um, Verses 9 through 11. And I love these. Because it's like, who you are now or who you used to be doesn't have to define your future, right? It says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Bad news. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Like, when it, when it comes to sin, like, because of Jesus, sin never has the last word in defining our lives. Sexual sin doesn't make you irredeemable. It makes you a sinner who Jesus will come and wash and sanctify and justify along with the Spirit over God. So if we recognize our sin, don't run from the Savior. Run to the Savior because he's here to help you. Um, okay, so that's joining what God has separated causes one issue. The other side is we run into problems when we separate what God has joined. Um, right? So that, that's what the issue in Mark was. But I'm guessing no one's dealing with divorce right now. No one's thinking about divorcing their wives. Okay, great. Um, I think the more significant separation for you guys is probably separating body from personhood when it comes to sexuality, right? It, it's this thought of, this is only physical, as if that was a real possibility. I just said it wasn't. Um, so back in like October, November sometime, we, we did this lesson, we are embodied creatures. Do you remember that? It's not that we have a body, we are a body. They're, our bodies aren't separate from us, they're not less than us. What you do to a body, you do to a person. And so, like, part of the evil of pornography, for example, is that the, other, the person on the other side of the camera is never treated as a person created in the image of God, but just a body, right? You don't honor her. You don't cherish her. You don't love or respect her in any ways. Rather, you completely divorce personhood, 
dignity, worth, value from body. And effectively says, who you are as a person doesn't matter to me. All I care about is your body. And because of that, it separates sexuality from that self-giving, sacrificial, committed love. There's no giving, only taking, because I don't care about you. You exist for my pleasures. I only care about the, the shadows of fulfillment I can take from you. Um, I should have brought this down. Ray Ortland, he's a, I guess he's retired now. He was a pastor down in Nashville. He has this really good little book about pornography and how to become a man of integrity, building a world of nobility. And um, he says, among other things, part of being a noble man is to think of women as the glorious queens of the universe that God created them to be, instead of just disinspirited bodies that exist for our consumption. Um, he says, I'm asking you to change how you see the woman on the porn site. I'm not asking you to make anything up. I'm only asking you to accept the way that God sees her. He is on her side. He is indignant at the way she's objectified, monetized, and mistreated. Which leads me to ask you for something else. I'm also asking you to change how you treat her. I want you to stop abusing her and start defending her. You're doing one or the other. The king of their universe created you, men, to stand as royalty, advancing his kingdom. Let that settle on you. But here's the next step. She's royalty too. God created every woman with high dignity and immeasurable worth. Whether or not any woman herself believes it, it's still true. God created her for majesty. God is why she matters. And no one has the right to degrade her since God has dignified her. Whoever a woman is in her sight, that's what she's really worth. And since to God above, every woman is regal, cherished, and worthy, it's about time that we men demand of ourselves and of this world that she be treated right. We have no business separating body from personhood, separating what God has joined together. Um, and again, like logic can go to other places. Does this apply to like the hookup culture? Absolutely it does. Um, any way that we separate body from personhood. But again, we can talk about that more later. Um, but let me, let me end this and bring up the last thing, which is the glory of singleness, because you guys, except for Joel, are all single, right? Like, I'm, I'm guessing nothing is mind-blowing tonight. Like, I've never heard that, you know, sex belongs in marriage and nowhere else. Like, that, that's pretty basic things. Um, but that's, that's not the only thing to talk about. Like, singleness is a gift from God. You're like, yeah, fruitcake's a gift too, but that doesn't mean we have to like it. Um, but, but that's not God's view on things. Singleness is a really, really good thing. Um, we all started off single. Joel, you're married. Were you always married? No. no, like some of us get married. Some of us stay single. And even for married people, like it, I'm not trying to be morbid, but like either me or Chrissy's going to be single again before we die when the other one does. Um, maybe we'll die together, I don't know, go off a cliff in a car or something cool. Um, but like, there's a, there's a lot of singleness that goes around, and that's fine. That, that's good. That, that's wonderful. Because neither marriage nor singleness is the goal, right? The goal is to honor God however you are, through purity, through chastity, through holiness. 
Um, which is, again, why I don't love this lesson. Because expressed sexuality is not necessary to be a human. Um, it, like, if it was, then Jesus wasn't truly human, and we're running into bigger theological problems than just sexuality. Um, it's not necessary for intimacy. God gave us friends to be intimate with. Um, actually, I've heard from like multiple sociologists just studying this week that with the rise of acceptance of homosexuality, friendships have like plummeted of meaningful friendships because we're just like over-sexualizing everything. Like, oh, you can't be good friends with a guy anymore or else you're, you're gay. Um, but like, that, that, that's not how this works. God gave a good gift of friendship. Be friends with people. Um, be, be intimate friends. Talk to each other. Care about each other. Pray for each other. Be, you know, rejoice and cry with one another. You don't have to be like sexually active to have intimacy. That, that's not how it works. God gave us good, close, godly friends to have intimacy in a chaste, pure life. And it's not necessary for family, right? You're like, oh, but, uh, I mean, the primary designation for family, if you're in Sunday school, we, we talked about this in Mark, like, who's my mother and my brothers? Those who do my will, they're my family, Jesus says. The, the primary way the New Testament talks about the church relationships is like brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and children. Right? You don't need to have a bunch of kids to have a family because Joel has a bunch of kids too. And I have some kids. And if we're in the church together, then like my kids are, are in, a, in, in your family, right? They need big brothers and sisters to look up to and, you know, weird uncles and cool uncles and, you know, whatever it needs to be. And that, that's like how the church works. We're supposed to be family. Whether we act like it or not, like the church is family. And sexuality is not even necessary to, to serve the church. First uh, Corinthians 7, we don't have time to go there, but Paul says, hey, if you have the option between being single and being married, and like it's, it's six and one half dozen of the other, be single. Like you can do a lot more for the kingdom. Can you imagine Paul like being shipwrecked and imprisoned and beaten with like a toddler hanging out with him? Like that's just going to be real difficult. Um, but but like a family is a good thing, he says, but it can also slow you down while you're doing work for the kingdom. And it's like, hey, if you can be free from family concerns, great. Go be 100% concerned for the family or for, for the kingdom and not focusing on, on the family. But if you want to get married, great. That, that's wonderful too. So like, don't, don't think, which we probably don't if you're 13, if you're 17, 18, you'll get there eventually, I'm guessing. I'm like, man, I'm really missing out because I'm not married or because I'm not having sex. Like, that's not really the case. God provides other routes for the things that you're wanting, for intimacy, for family, for meaning, for joy. Um, the values of the world aren't the values of God's kingdom. And so, so there's goodness in the way that we're created and the way God runs our lives. Um, which isn't to say it's easy, right? Jesus tells us, hey, the life of a Christian is to deny yourself, take your cross daily and follow me. But he also says that any sacrifice we make will be rewarded. Um, Matthew 19, 29, he says, 
anyone who has left houses or brothers or sister or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Um, 